Our passage tonight, all joking aside, is a truly shocking depiction of sin. The story before us is full of ruin and violence and waste. And the most shocking thing is how much of it is carried out by God's people. Genesis as a book, it teaches us a lot of things, but you know, one of the first or primary things that it teaches us is what sin does to the world. Uh, but at the same time, more importantly, it teaches us what God does to rescue us from sin. It's about how God gives grace to the undeserving uh, and how He uses unworthy people and how He accomplishes His plan no matter what uh, by the power of His love. But as that work of God unfolds, human beings continue to sin, and the horrible consequences of sin continue to spread around the world, impacting both the guilty and the innocent. This is the world we live in, uh, a world that is truly ugly to look at when you're looking for sin, uh, and a world that isn't getting any better and in many ways has always been the same. Reading this awful tale might make us stop and call out, where was God in this tragedy? Martin Luther, the reformer, certainly did. He wrote this, who is on guard here? Who is keeping watch? God and the angels close their eyes and pretend not to see. God ignores the matter and acts just as if he did not know it was happening. Wow. Was God ignoring his people? Did God close his eyes in Genesis 34? If he promised to protect Jacob and his family, why then is the most innocent family member brutally assaulted and held hostage? What does that mean for me as a person who God has made promises to? Now, we know because the Word of God says explicitly that the Lord never abandons us. He never leaves us. He doesn't close His eyes. We know that God was there. And more importantly, we know that He had an unfailing, unstoppable love for His people, and He does for us too. And so when asking, where was God? Well, here's one answer from our text, not on the minds of his people, not on the minds of Jacob or his family. Sadly, as we read through this passage, one of the most startling things is that God is absent, not from reality or not from, you know, the cosmos. No, no, he's absent from his people. Uh, they don't mention him. They don't speak to him. They don't obey him. They don't worship him. They don't pray to him. He's totally absent from their thoughts, their words, their actions, their plans, and the result is very grim. In our last study, if you were here, we saw that Jacob began to walk by faith after about 120 years of life, but after the Lord delivered him from danger, and they were in danger, Jacob was sore afraid, but the Lord delivered him. It was a magnificent passage. But after the Lord delivered him, Jacob then sort of rested back on his heels, and he stopped short of full obedience. He was meant to go to Bethel. Instead, he stopped, and he set up camp just 20 miles away from Bethel. That's close enough, right? It's an important question. Chapter 34 gives the answer. We'll watch with breaking hearts the downfall of being outside the will of God. It's not that bad things never happen to God's people. They do. But it becomes clear 
by the time we get to the end, that this bad thing would not have happened if Jacob had kept walking by faith, had simply been willing to follow the Lord and go after the Lord and be where the Lord wanted him to be. So let's begin in verse 1. Leah's daughter Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. So Dinah is around 15 or 16 years old. I would like to say right up front before we go on, she is absolutely not to be blamed for what happened to her on any level as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Almost every commentary that I consulted immediately uh, criticizes her for for going out of the house. Uh, Yes, they say Shechem did the worst thing, of course, but Dinah, you know, they say she was partially at fault. She was acting in, she must have been acting in some sort of disobedience. She must have been acting in some sort of imprudence or, or with some sort of impropriety. And so, you know, medieval commentators are particularly harsh toward her. They say this assault was the punishment for her curiosity. They say that all women should avoid curiosity, not just one or two. This is the line in all of the medieval commentaries. Going back to Martin Luther, for example, he uses this text as a basis for teaching that women should be, women should be like, quote, a nail driven into the wall, not leaving the house. He wrote this, Speaking of you ladies, this is a quote. They should not form the habit of strolling about and looking out of the window or lounging around the door. So you ladies, you most certainly shouldn't be here. But when you're at home, you shouldn't even look out the windows because there's this weird medieval idea among commentators of the Bible at that time that when ladies looked out the windows, like sin was just happening uh, through them and to them. And so, hey, don't, don't look out the windows. Don't stand in the doors. Does Dinah share any blame? Listen, they had lived in this spot for years. We know from earlier passages that women like Rachel would regularly go out as shepherdesses alone. Rebecca, going out to the well. Rachel was working out in the field by herself, probably at the same age that Dinah was. We know that Jacob had developed personal relationships with the people of this village, business contracts with the people of this village. Dinah had no doubt made many trips into town. And so this poor girl is not at fault. If you want to blame anyone besides this scumbag Shechem, then blame Jacob. Throughout this text, we are given the impression that he was totally indifferent to the plight of his daughter. It's a terrible thing to have to say, but but as we read it, this is the impression that we're given. This is the sense that is delivered to us through the way he's described and, and the things that he does and doesn't do. Jacob, the master shepherd, right? let his most precious lamb go in and out of the fold without help, without shield, without guide. He would never have let one of his sheep graze this way. He would never have allowed it as a shepherd. He would have watched over them carefully, kept them safe, kept them from being attacked or taken away. He spent his whole career under Laban doing this, decade after decade. But it's as if He has no care for his little girl. 
If you read commentaries on this passage, a few will try to suggest that this may not have been an assault at all, but that it was just an extramarital consensual relationship. And again, that is a needless and heartless attempt to implicate an innocent girl in this terrible sin. It doesn't fit the context, and it doesn't fit the language as explained at length by resources like the New American Commentary. I'm not a linguist. I'm not a biblical scholar. But you can go to very scholarly people who say, hey, here's what's going on in the Hebrew, and here's, what's, you know, here's how these terms are all used in other places, and here's what the context is, and here's how things are, are, are fleshed out. And so it is just completely uh, out of context uh, to say that this was not what it was. Verse 3, Shechem became infatuated with Jacob's daughter Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. Shechem is repulsive, rightly so. But, you know, we also pause and realize that this was normal. This was normal Canaanite behavior. This is what Canaanites did. Uh, this is just a, a small sliver, a, a small exposure to us of the kinds of ways that the Canaanites conducted themselves. We saw another window into the way Canaanites behave in the, uh, in the scene with, with Lot in the city of Sodom. And this is part of the reason why God said, I gave these people 400 years to, to repent of their horrible sin. And they rejected me, and so I'm going to bring judgment on them, and we're going to drive them out of the land. We're going to wipe them out. This was normal Canaanite behavior, what Shechem is doing. But before we, you know, turn our noses up at him too much and think that he's so different than us, we have to be real about the fact that this is normal sin behavior, right? It's not just that this was a Canaanite thing. This is a sin thing. Genesis teaches us that sin is no small thing. You know, we sometimes think of sins as small sins and big sins, and certainly the impact or the consequences of certain sins are, are more painful or more far-reaching than others, of course. But sin is no small thing. It's not a joke. And it pervades human culture, not just uh, Canaanite culture or not just Egyptian culture or Roman culture or Greek culture, American culture too. Sin pervades it, and it ruins everything in it. You realize, in one sense, Shechem was simply living out the advice that every single Disney movie and romantic comedy preaches to you every single time. Follow your heart, right? That's the message in our popular culture. Follow your heart. Do what your heart tells you. In a few verses, Shechem's dad is going to say, hey, his heart is set on Dinah, so let's make this happen. You know, our hearts are corrupted by sin. The Bible's really clear about that. And look at what sin motivated Shechem to do. Your heart is the worst possible thing you could follow. The Lord says, you know, you are bound and captive by sin. Sin is going to destroy you, so I'm going to rescue you from it. I'm going to take care of all of that. I'm going to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And you know what? The very first thing you need is a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new mind and a new purpose and a new future and, an, and a new perspective and a new vocabulary and a new way of communicating and a new way of thinking. I'm going to give you all, all of that needs to be replaced because sin has done such a job of corrupting and ruining your human heart, your human mind, your human culture. 
Shechem really did love, quote-unquote, Dinah, but it was with a, a, a human sin-soaked love, one that harmed her and held her hostage. To him, it was real, and it was passionate, and it was good in his mind. What kind of love would it have been to Dinah? Were his words tender in her ears as he spoke what he thought were sweet things to her? Of course not. Verse 5, Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter, Dinah, but since his sons were with the livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. So there's no record of Jacob sending word. It seems like he didn't really want his flocks disturbed as they were grazing. He was silent. We're not given any indication that he was even upset or really that bothered by this situation. Now, we might think, hey, 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 that's, that's going too far. How can that be? Of course he was upset. Yeah, that's possible, but let's remember this. Moses, our author, has been really quick to tell us other times that Jacob was emotional or upset or exploding in anger. He tells us all the time how, how Jacob's bursting into tears every five seconds. He's weeping all the time. He's yelling in anger at his wife, Rachel, when she's talking about, hey, give me a son. He's exploding in anger at Laban when he feels cheated. There's all these times where he's overly emotional, and Moses is very quick to tell us that. And what do we see here? None of that. We see a silent man sitting and doing nothing. R. Kent Hughes contrasts Jacob in this scene with how he acts when it comes to Joseph being hurt in a couple chapters, or later the mere suggestion that something might happen to Benjamin and Jacob falls all to pieces. Very emotional, very over the top. The comparison between those examples and our text tonight, it's not pretty. And it doesn't help that we know that Jacob really didn't care about Leah, who was Dinah's mom. And he really didn't care very much about Leah's kids. He really only cared about Joseph. Joseph was the firstborn in his mind. Joseph was the son he cared about until Benjamin came along, and then it was Joseph and Benjamin. And so we have to be real about the fact that Moses is at least wanting to give us the impression that Jacob is completely passive, completely indifferent, uh, completely silent while all this is going on. Now, on the one hand, what could he do, right? He's an old man, just one man against this whole town, right? But what did we see in the very last passage? As one man, he stood as the defender between his family and the 400 troops of Esau. He thought, this army is coming with Esau to kill us, and if that happens, I will stand alone in the road between them and my family, right? There certainly weren't 400 men in this village. But back then, in that previous passage, he was walking by faith. Now, for some years, he had been indifferent to the Lord, and that indifference has influenced him profoundly. Verse 6, meanwhile, Shechem's father Hamor came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident. They were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, for such a thing should not be done. The brothers had a deep, grieving, blazing fury when they heard, it seems, through the grapevine what had happened. Jacob is still silent. He's still indifferent. For Jacob, we'll find this is all about being outnumbered. That's what he's worried about. For the brothers, this is about the outrage. 
It's about right and wrong for them at this point. When Shechem and Hamor come to negotiate with Jacob, the father, well, the brothers show up and they take over the situation. Jacob, in his indifference, is sidelined. Verse 8, Hamor said to Jacob's sons, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about. Acquire property in it. Hamor, the chief of this region, thinks he has a lot to offer. Do you notice that he only offers things that God had already promised to Jacob and his descendants? God had already promised them offspring. God had already promised them land and abundance in it. He'd already offered them freedom and, and peace and, and a, a life full of blessing. In fact, God had guaranteed much more than Hamor could offer. This is what the world does. This is what sin does. It comes and whispers to us about all the things that it can offer. It offers you pleasure. It offers you purpose. It offers you power. It offers you position. But everything it offers comes at a brutal price. And what it delivers cannot compare to that which the Lord wants to give you. The pleasure of sin, of course, we know is fleeting and rancid. The Lord's joy is forevermore. The purpose the world offers you is built on things that have no eternal value, like the grass of the field where it's here today and gone tomorrow. The purposes that the Lord gives us, that, those purposes, the Bible says, make us shine like stars in the heavens forever and ever. The power and the position the world holds and dangles before you are frankly not theirs to give. Compare that to what the Lord promises through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1. It says this, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. The world has nothing to offer you and I. It has nothing to give you that can last forever that can stand the test of time and eternity. And all it offers you in the meantime, all of those temporal things, all of those, those grass of the field things, it offers them to you at a brutal price. Look at what Hamor and Shechem did to Dinah. And then consider that at that very moment, she was still being held hostage in Shechem's home. We learn that in verses 17 and 26. So they come here saying, oh, we offer you this, we offer you that, we offer you this, we offer you that. Yeah, where's my daughter? Oh, she's being held hostage at our home. You want to say yes? You want to agree to that? Well, will I get my daughter back? No, she stays with me. But we promise to give you some other stuff. That's what's going on. That's what the world does. Now, in the story, I can see why Hamor made this offer. Jacob, as a leader of this clan, had signaled that this was what he must have wanted. He spent years cozying up to these Canaanites, just like Lot had with Sodom. Throughout this scene, Jacob remains silent. He doesn't protest. Uh, he doesn't bring up charges against them. Remember how quick he was to bring up charges against Laban when Laban cheated him out of some, some earnings? He doesn't do any of that. And so Hamor got all these signals from this guy, and so he says, live with us. You seem to want to live with us, so let, let's make it official. Live with us. The word there, we're told, can mean remain sitting down. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's telling that the very first thing, the very next thing that God says to Jacob is, get up, go to Bethel, 
settle there. And so we have a little Psalm 1 thing happening here. You're going to be, remain seated here in the paths of the wicked? Or are you going to get up and go where the Lord wants you to go and walk with him? Verse 11 says this, Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor. I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask me. Just give the girl to be my wife. Oh, so now Shechem wants to do things honorably. Now he wants to sort of be on the up and up with what he's doing. Remember, he's holding her hostage in his house. Shechem has no fixed morality. This is how he does things. This is how they all did things back then. He has no fixed morality, only desire, only impulse. The Canaanites show us how different the life of faith is meant to be. Your life is not meant to be lived from one impulse to the next, one desire to the next, with those, those desires and those wants ruling your thoughts and your choices. The Lord comes along and says, no, I, I want you to build your life on the rock. I want you to conform your life to my truth and to my leading. I want you to turn away from the world and instead join me on this walk of faith where I'll go with you and I will accomplish incredible things through your life. I've carved out a path for you to discover and walk in. Just come with me. We're to be anchored to the truth of God and build our lives on the truth of God and allow the truth of God to conform us into the image of Christ. Where it's not my desires determining the things that I want and the things that I do and the choices that I make, but it is the Lord God who reveals himself through his word directing my life. Because we believe that he knows the way to go and we believe that what he offers cannot be compared to the trash that the world is offering and that our sinful hearts are trying to offer to us. Verse 13, Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to him. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves, live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. It is astonishing to me to realize that Jacob himself signed off on this plan. You see, he also didn't know what the brothers were planning on doing. Once we see what they did and, and he talks with them, he's blown away. He's like, what are you guys doing? Which means that he signed off on this plan. Like Hamor, he goes along with it. And so look at what his, his spiritual indifference is doing. It, it, is, it left his precious daughter unprotected. It blinded his heart to what's really right and what's wrong. And now his indifference to spiritual things, has just signed off on a plan that would be the end of the chosen people, right? The Canaanites, we're going to see, immediately recognize that they will simply absorb this Hebrew family, and the Hebrew family will be gone forever. And they said, everything that they have will just be ours. They'll be gone. And that's true. But Jacob agrees to this plan. He signs on the dotted line. It's a spiritual tragedy. So now the story pivots to focus on the brothers who are also sadly part of the downfall of living outside the will of God. You know, in, in Jacob, we see incredible spiritual indifference. In the brothers, we see ruthless destruction. 
Their anger may have started out righteous, but their methods from the start were completely outside of God's boundaries. First, they start by deceiving. Deception has no place in the way that we live our lives. Second, their plan uses their sister as bait. This is not how God uses people. It exposes her to more abuse. Sure, the brothers are planning to help her, but their plan would leave her captive for at least three or four more days, being subjected to unspeakable atrocities, harm, and fear. God does not dangle His people out like bait in this way. Third, their methods were absolutely sacrilegious. They took something godly, something holy, and they perverted it so it could be used as a weapon. This is not how God's people are supposed to contend with the enemy. They said, do this or we will take our daughter and go. Yeah, that's exactly what you should have done, like five years ago. But none of them were walking by faith. None of them were just inclining their hearts toward the Lord. And, you know, we try here at Calvary not to criticize Bible characters or or disciples or these folks too much, but sometimes you have to to say this is what they were doing. We will learn that Jacob's family, all of these children had become pagan idolaters. They all had household idols. In a couple passages, Jacob's going to call them all together and he said, hey, I think we have to get rid of our household idols. And they're like, oh, okay. So they all come and bring their dumb little idols, and he goes and hides them under a tree. So they've all become pagan idolaters. There's no way that we can look at them and say, oh, yeah, they're following the Lord. They're obeying the Lord. They're seeking after the Lord. They are are living in active faith towards the Lord. They're just not. And so because of that, in this terrible trial, they are not bearing the fruit of love. They're bearing the fruit of the flesh, sin and violence and hatred and vengeance. Verse 18 Their words seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most important in all his father's family. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. Archaeology indicates that this town wouldn't have been a major city yet, but it was large enough to have a wall and gates. One resource I saw suggested it was kind of like a mud wall that was, you know, it wasn't like a big stone wall. Don't think of a huge fortified city, but it was a a village, a town, had some sort of wall and gates, and there the men of fighting age gathered to discuss the plan. Shechem was their prince and had a lot of influence. Uh, He's designated here a young man and leads them all to their doom. Verse 21, these men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and, only, and be one people only on this condition. If all of our men are circumcised as they are, won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let's agree with them and they will live with us. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. So their end goal was not just to take Dinah, but to take everything from Jacob and his family, to leave them with nothing. Remember, all those promises of power and possessions and freedom that that Hamor had made? Well, it was all a lie. It was just a ruse so that their enemies could bleed them dry ultimately. That's what sin wants to do to you, makes plenty of offers. Uh, pitches you a, a pretty, pretty scheme, but it just wants to bleed you dry, leave you with nothing. Don't take the bait. 
The name Hamor means male donkey. He had invited Jacob to dwell with them to enjoy all the pleasures they could offer. If they did, of course, we see here, they'd be swallowed up. It reminds me of the old Pinocchio cartoon. The boys rush off to Pleasure Island only to become donkeys, enslaved forever, right? But effectively, that's what's happening here. Give yourselves to us. You can become just like us, me, the male donkey. (laughs) That's what my name means. Also, by the way, thanks, Mom and Dad. When you were naming your son, let's name him Hamor. Uh, Verse 25, on the third day, when they were still in pain, Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. So Simeon and Levi were full brothers of Dinah. So were Reuben, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. We're not told why they weren't involved in the mass murder, and that's what this was, mass murder. This would have been a prolonged, savaged undertaking. I can't even imagine. Let's call it 20 houses. Let's call it 30 houses. Without fixating too much on it, how long do you think that takes to go from house to house cutting all of these men down? Uh, We've never known carnage like this in our experience. This is not justice. They butchered many innocent people who had nothing to do with the situation. But revenge had taken hold of their hearts like indifference had taken hold of Jacob's. And the result was maybe the worst act of sin this book had recorded, and it was carried out by the family of faith. We are not immune from sin. We're rescued from it. We are strengthened to overcome it, but we're not immune from it. If we think sin is only a problem for the pagans, then we need to pay attention and and humble ourselves before the Lord. God's people are just as able to bring ruin and destruction to this world when we're not walking with the Lord and when we're giving place to sin in our lives. If the slaughter wasn't bad enough, we see it was followed up by a merciless plundering of this city. The text isn't specific, but it would seem that while the two brothers did the killing, the rest did the stealing. And I have to say, it makes me wonder, was Joseph part of the raiding party too? A lot of times people say, you know, Joseph is this great picture of, of our Lord because he, no sins of Joseph are ever recorded. Maybe. Or maybe he was there filling his pockets full of doubloons. Uh, the, text isn't, the text isn't specific. Let's notice one more thing about this appalling deed. They took the wives and children from these houses. So in the end, they are effectively doing what Shechem did only on a mass scale. They hide their sin behind a phony veil of religion. Oh, we're so offended at the unrighteous thing that you did that we have to turn around and do the same thing to you many times over and do it to other people who had nothing to do with this situation. Compare the murderous spree of Levi, who claimed to be motivated by righteous anger, to Levi's later descendant, Phinehas, in the book of Numbers. Phinehas really was motivated by righteous anger, and there in that 
that very unique and, and intense scene, he slew two people who were in open sin, mocking God in the camp and bringing judgment on the people. And Phinehas went in and he executed them and no one else. And in that unusual, unique situation there in the camp of Israel, the Lord signed off on it and said, okay, the right thing happened in this situation. That's not what's happening in this chapter. This is not justice. This is not righteous. They could not appeal to heaven's morality because they had utterly violated it themselves. There are things done under the banner of faith that have nothing to do with the truth, have nothing to do with Jesus. Sometimes, the the easy example is this. Sometimes people say, well, Christianity had the Crusades as if that proves the Bible is false or that God doesn't exist, right? People use that as if it's some kind of silver bullet. The Crusades had nothing to do with genuine Christianity any more than this vicious mass murder did, right? None of us say, well, yeah, God wanted them to do that. No, He didn't. It's reporting what they did because the Bible is a true document that is giving us uh, the story of God's people, good, bad, and ugly. But But the Crusades had nothing to do with genuine Christianity. Today, prominent Christians out there or people calling themselves Christians will sometimes commit acts of sin and will expect to get a pass on it because of who they are and their position or their prominence or whatever. That's not how the truth works. That's not how holiness works. God says, hey, I I expect real faith from you. I expect a living faith where you're, you're exercising your faith and you're actually following me and, and inclining your heart towards me. So finally, Jacob speaks as the chapter closes. Let's see what he has to say. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Uh, Jacob got attacked by the me monster here. Uh, he, earlier, we see he showed no emotion, right? Now he's all worked up. Did you notice? He doesn't talk about his daughter at all. He says, they're going to attack me, 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 I, and my household. We're going to be destroyed. Where's the Jacob of chapter 33? That guy's nowhere to be found in this text. It's interesting. The Lord had renamed him Israel in chapter 32, which signaled the beginning of something truly wonderful, truly transformative. But after that great scene of spiritual transformation, Jacob stopped following the Lord. He stopped pursuing the Lord. He settled where he didn't belong. He became indifferent to spiritual things. He's not Israel in chapter 34. Even Moses just keeps calling him Jacob. He's Jacob once again. Once he realizes how he's been living, realizes how he's not giving his heart to the Lord, he returns to the Lord in chapter 35, and then in chapter 35, the Lord is going to again rename him Israel. And so, like, like is true for most of us, you know, he took two steps forward, one step back. But the Lord was still with him. This period in his life was a low point, spiritually speaking. It was a mistake, a painful mistake. But God did not give up on Jacob. He didn't write him off. The Lord's mercy is new every morning. Praise the Lord. As the chapter closes, we see a great divide in the family. The boys just outright defy their father. They openly rebuke him in front of everyone. There's no resolution to their argument. The account just ends. Jacob, it seems, resented these two sons till the day he died, if you were to page over to chapter 49. 
And we will see the terrible consequences of these spiritual missteps continue to impact the family in terrible ways. Jacob worried about how few they were. But he should know by now it didn't matter how few they were. If the Lord was for them, who could be against them? Sin is a scary thing. Being outside the will of God is a dangerous thing. This is why God has intervened to save us and to draw him to himself. And he says, hey, take my yoke upon you. Hey, be with me. Abide in me. He placed no barriers between Jacob and Bethel, right? We know that he wanted Jacob in Bethel. And he's going to tell Jacob outright again. He's like, hey, get to Bethel, man. He had placed no barriers between Jacob and Bethel. It was Jacob who stopped short for commercial strategic reasons. But this delay proves what Proverbs says more than once to us. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And that's being worked out here in this passage. I don't mean to suggest that as long as you follow God, no one in your family will ever be suffer or be hurt. That's not true. Following God does not shield us from every attack. Bad things happen to God's people even when they are abiding in the Lord and right where the Lord wants them to be, to be sure. But this terrible story should remind us of how dangerous sin is in the culture around us, how dangerous it is when we uh, are left to operate our own hearts instead of allowing the Lord to, to direct us and to encourage us and to conform us. We don't need to live in fear of failure. That's not the point. We just need to live in the fear of the Lord. The Bible says this, how happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. The Lord keeps his eyes on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love to rescue them from death. It's not that Jacob was the only one responsible to keep his family safe from all harm. Bad things happen to God's people. But he removed himself from the place where God could shield him in an effective way. The Lord said, get to Bethel. Be with me at Bethel. Do what you said you would do. Honor me and follow me and commune with me. And because this is a relationship of faith, I need you to come and do it here. And Jacob said, I guess. How about I just hang out over here and I kind of ignore you for three, five, ten years? And when that happened, tragedy was the result. Not because God was mad at him, not because God was judging him, not because Jacob, you know, needed to do more in order to be blessed. That's not the point. But one of the truths the Bible gives us is that if we, as people who know the truth and who've been invited to commune with God, if we say, how about instead I just hang out in Pleasure Island? Okay, in the end, you're going to be a donkey in a cage because that's what happens to people at Pleasure Island. How about I live in Sodom? Okay, it's going to end up really bad for you because that's what happens. And so the Lord had not abandoned Jacob. The Lord had not closed his eyes to this suffering. The Lord was still with him. The Lord still had mercy for him. The Lord still had help for them. But so much of, of the the problems we face in life are not because we don't do enough or because the Lord's not doing enough. It's because we're not receiving from the Lord what He wants to give. And instead, on some level, we've said, how about instead I stop 20 miles short? And we don't want to do that. 
We want to follow the Lord, walk with the Lord, go with him, listen to him, believe him, and turn away from the offers that the world makes because the world can't offer us anything that matters.